So we do know the effects of what does happen if we become industrialised. It's not just uh, the loss of bush, uh, it's people's well-beings. Um, other things occur, which is, is just not good for anyone. We lose so much in the name of growth. We not only lose our land, but you know, we lose our mind. You are listening to the Post Growth Australia podcast. The one podcast where size don't matter and where better is better than bigger. Hello, all and sundry, and welcome to New Year's 2024. I'm your co-host, Michael Bayliss, here with fellow co-host, Mark Allen. We are recording on Manang Noongar country on lands that were never ceded, and we would like to pay respect to the traditional stewards and to elders past, present and emerging. Mark, hello, and well done for making it almost halfway through the decade of consequence. Oh, thanks, Michael, and Happy New Year to you and everyone. I feel very grateful that I've made it through. I'm still waiting for my certificate and complimentary carriage clock <laughs> to mark the occasion. Yes, well, we're not renowned for our glowing optimism at PGAP, so wishing each other a happy new year may be a bit disingenuous. Um, but what are your thoughts for the year ahead? Oh, look, I'm not an optimist. I'm expecting to see more of the same unfolding horror, um, climate and ecological emergency getting worse, which, of course, is a limits to growth emergency and a lot of political upheaval that will come with that. But at the same time, you know, I'm very grateful for the fact that we're still here and still doing what we can. And I will continue to pursue uh, systemic and behavioural change and look forward to embracing the year ahead and see what it brings. Well, thank you very much for your thoughts, Mark. And yes, we will keep on fighting and recording to the bitter end. But what a fantastic way to open the PGAP New Year than with an interview on site in Albany with Manang Noongar educator and environmental advocate Larry Blight. Back in 2023, both of us were hugely honoured to take part in a tour of the Yakima Forest in Albany with Larry Blight as our guide. As explored on a recent episode of PGAP titled A Tribute to Community Groups Fighting Big Overdevelopment in WA, we interviewed Annabelle Pauley from the Friends of Yakimaya, who shared with us that the Yakimaya Forest, which is one of the very few remnant native forests left in the Albany metro area, is under threat naturally from developers. We will include a link to the episode in the show notes. I had always held appreciation for the Yakimai Forest from a more intellectual perspective as a refuge for native ringtail and black cockatoo populations, for example. But I think I can speak for both of us that after Larry's tour, we both resonated with the forest on a much more deeper level. I remember Larry describing his connections to the red-tailed black cockatoo, which he described as one of his totem animals. Right at the end of the tour, we were all greeted by a family of red-tailed cockatoos, and I can only describe this moment as incredibly sublime. Anyway, I was so honoured when Larry said yes to being interviewed for PGAP. When I caught up with Larry in early December to discuss possible conversation topics, I just returned from the New Economy Network Australia conference in Canberra. At the conference was a talk from First Nations academic Mary Graham, who made a point that deeply stuck with me. That is, in order to have a steady state economy, we need a steady state society first. 
one in which the many First Nations societies within what we now call Australia has successfully achieved. Mary's talk can be heard in the previous PGAP episode live at the NINA conference, link in the show notes. We connected to Larry on so many issues and we wanted to base the interview within the Yakamara Forest itself to be intimate with the preciousness of the land and what could soon be lost forever as a springboard toward a much larger conversation on the impacts of the growth at all cost culture that has been imposed upon all of us and in particular First Nations people. Before we dive into the conversation itself, heads up that given this was recorded on site at the Yakamaya Forest, recording live in the outdoors provided a degree of intimacy and connection to the land, which inspired a deep conversation that came with it its own set of sound challenges. In this case, much outdoor ambience, such as the wind and the local animals, can all be heard throughout the interview. We did our best to boost the production values during editing, and would like to thank Andrew Skiuk and Crystal Mastering for their assistance here to make the episode as crisp as we can, but sometimes it does sound a little rough around the edges. Yeah, this is an incredibly important interview because without reconnecting to First Nations culture and the deep connection that First Nations people have to country, we don't really have any chance of turning this ship around. Post-growth as a system of living will not work until we break free from that colonial mindset that somehow the earth and the biosphere are resources for us to exploit and chew up. The development of this land for housing is ongoing colonialism and without a voice to Parliament and no opportunity for First Nations people to have their say in a legally recognised form, it is doubly so. So if we don't work for restorative justice, we all lose. And this must be, for me and for hopefully others, what will really underpin 2024. That being said, we hope you enjoy our interview with Larry Blight. Welcome to PGAP. How are you? Oh, good. Thanks, Michael. Thank you for having me here today. Um, and my old dog, uh, Kuda, who you might be hearing panting at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what a delight it is to be back at the Yakamaya Forest as well, recording on site. It's just absolutely beautiful here. It's just gorgeous. We, you know, we're picking up the sounds of all these beautiful birds, the insects and the cicadas. All, everything about this place is just so special. We've got... This is medicine for us, it's for all of us, isn't it? And it's just so special to be here. Well, it feels so different, you know, coming into the bush um, as opposed to just, you know, <laughs> walking around. There's, there's stark difference between suburbia just on the end of the road here and here and yeah. what two very different worlds they are. It's so, so true. And as you just pointed out, we're only 100 metres away from housing. Mm. Um, it's largely unspoiled. Country in here, there are a few introduced uh, species, but, but by and large, it's it's pretty intact, and it's just a very rare little patch of bush that we actually have left in the Elvin area. There's lots of laterite here, and um, we know with the laterite, uh, our Jarrah forests need that to grow. It's a similar story um, that we hear so often on PGAP of having to put out the spot fires because of the next development and overdevelopment. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Larry, yes. and 
anything you want to share about um, your life history growing up, what you do, and a little bit about your community as well. Yeah, well, I'm, um, my name is Larry Blight. Um, my family are coin family uh, of this region. We have we have ties that go back many, many generations just through this region itself. So we're on Manang country. Uh, Manang is the name of our, our Noongar Indigenous people of the south coast of Western Australia. And I guess I could, uh, you could call me a bit of a Manang educator, I guess. Manang man, Larry Blight, educator. Over many, many years growing up, I used to go at my grandfather, my uncles, up out bush quite a lot. And uh, they would show me lots of different things. My grandfather used to tell me the names of all the animals and the trees and the plants, how they all relate to each other. That was also shown the uh, bush foods and the medicine plants and how important the bush is for us and certainly from when I can remember even 35, 40 years ago there was a lot more bush around so we had a lot more places we could go to and uh, down the track nowadays those same places uh, are very, very well thinned out or they're completely gone and that's, that's very sad uh, as well so for me my, my role is to pass on information. Everything I've learnt is uh, my role is to pass it on to everyone else who wants to join in for a beautiful bush walk and we'll just show the beauty and how our bush or our Nala Budja or sometimes Nyalak Budja, uh, Nala or Nyalak is um, our name for mother and our Budja is earth. Uh, so it's our mother earth and when we think about it, the bush, um, she gave birth to every one of us as a mother would. Uh, she provides us with food, water shelter, medicines. You know, sometimes we just need to go somewhere quiet. She gives us that opportunity to go and sit somewhere, much like we're doing now, and just listen to nature, and the nature will talk to you, you know, from the tiniest little insects uh, to the biggest birds, um, or the kangaroos, um, and uh, the beautiful beautiful birds. And um, that, that's, that's medicine for us as well. Um, I do wonder... What will happen if all of this goes? Where can we go? Where can we go to, you know, where can we go and sit somewhere to heal ourselves? Not just myself, um, our elders, but certainly everyone. And a lot of the younger people need this. They certainly need this place. This is a beautiful little community bush for all of us. Yeah, had a tour with the Yakamaya, Friends of Yakamaya group yes. um, that you showed us through and hosted and it was like this already beautiful bush just opened up so many more layers and I remember at the end of the walk we were serenaded by you know the red tailed black oh, yes. cockatoos and wasn't that incredible but um you know <laughs> not not everyone will have the joy of walking through here not all listeners so I was just wondering if you give us a little bit of a verbal tour of what one might encounter yes. um, through the Yakamaya, and then perhaps we can end with what specifically are the current threats to the of Yakamaya. Yes, certainly. If we were able to cast an eye around us, we're just on a slight rise. We're probably elevated about 50 to 80 metres above what was once, just 200 years ago, a beautiful big wetland, a bilia. And that was uh, known, and still is known as Yakamaya. Now, Yaka or Yakin is our name for the long-necked turtle that we find uh, in our creeks and waterways through here. And Maya is home of. So, this is part of 
place where we used to get lots and lots of long-necked turtles, um, especially in the what, what was once the beautiful wetlands just down below us, which is now sporting fields. So just above it, we can just picture this place is surrounded by she-oak, the quail. Um, and we know that the quail uh, drops beautiful needles, which are nice and soft. And we know that quite often we'd have lots of births in these areas. People coming in at certain times of the year from other areas. So summertime, Menang people back down onto the coastal areas from the winter times further inland out towards the Boronga or the Prongra, all the way out to the Kuchnara, the Stirling Ranges. That was the winter homes. But people coming back here, women especially, they knew they were going to have their buds very soon. Places like this where they'd find a beautiful soft spot, beautiful needles uh, to lay on. And you know, with uh, some other ladies, they would have their babies here. Uh, and what a beautiful place to have it. Nice and peaceful. And we're also, and it's just been, have also been noted that right down towards the base, we have this beautiful soft sand. Now, we do associate lots of births through here. And there would also have been those that would have passed on here as well. On the very place that we're probably sitting on, there's probably people that did pass here. Now, when people did pass, we tried to find somewhere very close by with lots of soft sand. And certainly down towards the bottom end of this little hill, uh, on the southern side, we have this lots and lots of soft sand. So we can only imagine that there were probably quite a few people that would have been buried there over many thousands and thousands of years yeah. as well. We also, you do mention the red-tailed cockatoo, the currack, the, uh, that's our name for it, and it's a spirit bird. And we're so lucky occasionally that we do see them in here. We've often seen mother and father with a couple of babies in tow, and they bring them in here. It's like a nursery. It's a safe place for them. They're generally undisturbed, and you know we're seeing them eating the nut from the um, from the she oak. Mm-hmm. Um, we also, uh, you know, the jarrah nut, um, and also the red gum, the the mary nut. It's a feast for them here, and it's not just those. We we know we have the western ringtail possum, the noya. Uh, so threatened. Uh, it's it's been said that they could possibly be extinct within twenty years, um, which is not long. Yeah. We do associate, and most people do think that oh, there's being tails there's everywhere, but you're only finding them everywhere in small patches. Specifically, where we have peppermint, the wainer tree, which is their main food source, and you can't relocate these these little critters. They have a basically a boundary of about eighty meters. Uh, if you were to take them out of that area and pop them to a new place to be re- relocated, if there was another ringtail possum there, that would kill it. So there's no answer about trying to re- relocate them. And we know that there's a, a property that we're just sitting next to that is being basically it's going to be cleared. Um, 2.4 hectares of it. We're looking right at it, right aren't we? we? Yeah. And just just from here, looking into it, it's it's just beautiful, isn't it? I mean, mm. um, we've got these very old she oak trees in here, the quail. Now, some of these trees could be several hundred years old. Can you imagine, you know, the amount of children that were being born here? New life being brought into the world right in front of us uh, over many, many thousands and thousands mm. of years. Um, not to mention, all the animals, all the animals that have been born here and died here, and also some of the very rare endemic little flowers that we have here. We have certain orchids that we'll find maybe in just one or two patches. I think we have some just in this little patch next to us as well. It's hard this time of the year because it's generally summertime, so most of our orchids don't flower this time of the year. But we can certainly identify a lot of the broad leaves um, when they come out. 
So this particular patch really needs a lot more study to go into it before anything should be done here. To me, it really, really begs belief why we're pulling so much bush nowadays. And really, we should be revegetating, bringing things back, not continuously wiping them out. And, you know, this is a microcosm of the same shit that's going across yeah. the, the entire planet. You know, I just did an interview with various WA groups. One of them was Annabelle from Friends of Yakimaya. Another one was Perth Hills groups trying to stop roads from going through and, you know, coming back from New Economy Networkers Australia. That was great because there was a united vision that, you know, the problem is growth-based capitalism or neoliberalism or a cultural colonisation mindset yes, that's been yes. going, you know, for hundreds if not you know thousands of years and uh, this that this is the latest manifestation and from that um, one of the taking was uh, if the degrowth community want to advocate for a steady state economy that's going to stop you know growth at all costs just clearing everything in sight because in a growth-based society nothing's sacred that we do need to learn from uh, First Nations societies in order to have the steady state society that will lead to or allow for a steady state economy. So I was just wondering if you have any thoughts. I mean, this is a oh, podcast on growth. Of so course, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no. What you think we can learn from Noongar Manang and all First Nations wisdom on this issue? Oh, and, and, you, I mean, and you're so right, Mark. The Amazon provides about a third or two-thirds of the Earth's oxygen. Mm. Um, so we need to look after our lungs. Mm. Um, and, and to me, this, this isn't anything like the Amazon, but it's still so unique. Western Australia's southwest, the forests of southwestern Australia were once its own pristine subtropical rainforests uh, with some, you know, a number of trees, trees and plants we only find here, we find them nowhere else on Earth. It's a biodiverse hotspot. And you know, in the last 100 years, we've witnessed about 75% of it has been cleared, uh, which is unbelievable. And we also have mining companies coming in here now, and the mining companies seem to ride over the top of everyone else, regardless of uh, the EPA's approvals or non-approvals, they still go ahead with it. When there's probably 90 or 95% of the population don't want it. We do not want it at all. These decisions are being made by the top people who really shouldn't have the right to speak for all of us, or for, in fact any of us. We feel that there's enough mining going ahead, uh, there's enough clearing going ahead, it should all stop. Um, we do not need any more resources from the southwest. We have enough already, but when is enough enough? The fact is also um, the population, we, we know that Australia's population is getting close to 27 million people now, um, 26.6 um, I think. Western Australia is just about 3 million people now. It's a big, big continent, but it's quite fragile. You know, it's basically a coastal ecosystem. And our woodlands and our, you know, what's left of them, if they're all gone in the next 100 years, I, I doubt whether humans are even going to be around in another, another 100 years. Mm. Um, the thing that gets me is this could be stopped right now. And instead we're going to be left with tiny little patches uh, we know here especially we have the laterite, uh, which is our Jarrah trees need that to survive. It's been proven that um, where laterite's removed from the ground for bauxite mining, 
uh, 20 years after they've revegetated these sites, jarrah trees just will not grow enough because mm. the laterite's been removed. And this is one of those places. Over many, many thousands and thousands of years, uh, we've occupied this particular region for well over 50,000 years with sustainable populations, uh, just moving through group to group, region to region, never staying in one place for too long, so we never exhaust resources. Every single one of us had a role, so uh, in our role could be in the form of our totems. Uh, I have three totems. Um, traditionally, I would have had two. So our totems are a spirit animal or you know, it could be a tree or a plant or a waterway. But we were all responsible for the well-being uh, of those particular totems. Um, mine, my totems are the red-tailed cockatoo, the currack, from my grandmother's side. Uh, my grandfather's side was the, the raven, the wardong, and also the little bobtail, the urine. So my, I have three animals so I have to always ensure the well-being of. If I was to come across an injured one, I'd have to look after I'd take it home, I'd look after it, get it better again, and then release it. And I've done it a few times with uh, the raven and also the bobtails. And just think, if there were, say, 6 million Aboriginal people in uh, the continent upon settlement... Every one of those people had at least two animals or plants or, um, or whatever to ensure the well-being of. So everything was covered. All these environmentalist uh, protection protectionists roaming through this region for many, many thousands of years, mm -hmm. always ensuring the well-being of our environment. Everything was beautifully maintained. Uh, just the general burning, uh, which is another big part of it. Uh, burned twice a year, once during the winter for a light burn. And this time of the year, the Biroc season was when the, the second burn. That promotes regrowth, brings in animals, um, and it just basically the well-being of our of our bushlands as well. So as we do down here, we take our young people out, uh, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, um, young and old alike. We bring everyone out to these places, and it, this becomes everyone's culture. And it's such a beautiful culture too, isn't it? So... But one of these little bushes has a type of wasp that only lays its egg in this particular bush. Um, and if that bush were to disappear, that little wasp would also disappear. Now, the effects on that we just can't even imagine. It's only a tiny little insect. What other insects does it control? Little things like that can just start tipping things off, and then we know what happens. Everything falls apart. It's interesting because... Um we talk about there's been the massive reduction in the amount of insects worldwide. Yes. And this feeds into that as well. You know, we we have this, this precious bushland, but it, clearing bushland affects so many different layers, doesn't it? It's, it's, it's multi, multifaceted. And I don't think this communication gets through to policymakers. They don't think about the insects. They don't think about... No, it's the smaller things and how it all interconnects. And there's a, for me, it's that lack of joined up thinking. Yeah, exactly. And that's a real problem, isn't it? It's, it's, it's a massive problem. It's, it's going to wipe out um, a lot of our foods, uh, our flowers. And I think in the United States alone, I think they've lost half the insect population over there. Um, they're also having massive problems with their bees. An old friend of mine, he, he's got a block. Um, down the coast a little bit off the Palamut River and his place is pristine and um, unfortunately he's situated next to a farm and um, the farm's got canola on it and a couple of years ago every year the farm gets sprayed for you know, insects 
Now, he had some amazing orchid species that were very rare uh, on the edge of this block and they started disappearing. They, the orchids have disappeared. But it's also all the wasps and insects that were pollinating them. They've all been, been wiped out by the insects and uh, insecticides. And so, and he's noticed that it's it's a massive loss that he's seeing on this property just from spraying one property. It's the wider impact of it as well that's um, that's that's occurring. Um, so certainly, a lot of our flowers are the banksia. I was only looking at a beautiful banksia the other day, and all the little native bees that were on it, tiny little ones. Yeah. Some of them are just tiny, they're little, like little black wasps. Other ones have got a beautiful little red belly. They're tiny little things. And if you didn't know what they were, you'd just think it's, oh, it's a fly or something. But they're beautiful little um, bees as well. Um, and they're going about their business, pollinating everything and ensuring our wild flowers are hopefully still going to be around. Um, as you mentioned, Mark, when, when people start, you know, um, contractors going in and they start spraying everything and killing off all these... In insects or bugs, pests as they call them, we should just let nature do that by itself. Let the spiders, let them take care of it, let the birds sort all them out. You know, they, they, they have good insect control. Um, but as you know, you lose, you lose your insects, then you start losing your animals as well. And then, then uh, not long after that, then, you know, obviously our bush goes and our pet, then we start to go as well. Um, it's a knock-on effects, doesn't it? A really massive knock-on effects. This last fragment out here is one of the few last fragments in this part of Albany. Yes. And as you say, people can come here and connect to nature. Yes. It's from a town planning perspective, it has passive recreational benefits. It certainly, it really does, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? It's it's so close by. We know people love coming here to walk. You know, sometimes with a dog like this old boy here, Kuda, he, he's <laughs> loving it here today. He's got a big smile on his face. He does, yeah, yeah, he yes. does. So, um, yeah, exa exactly. The bush, and it's only a tiny little patch. What's left? There is another area that's bigger than this, and that's that's basically being cleared uh, as we as we speak yes. now, and it's a very similar area to this for another estate. Just you know, in the uh, the Bainet Head area of the Albany area, and our city, um, our city are letting it happen. Um, and it's like, come on, people, can't you just listen? I mean, we've already mentioned the fact why our elders are really involved in this project right now to save the Akamai Forest. And, and I can't blame them. I mean, they've been seeing this happen all their lives. Quite a lot of the elders were actually involved in having, having to clear land for the farmers. So this is very, very painful for them. They are certainly very much sitting up and watching but they, it's it's just way too painful for them now to, to witness the you know the degradation disruption of some of their last limit bushes here as well. I, I certainly get it for them. So um, so some of their younger people are, are stepping up. And we've got some amazing people like yourselves, um, Annabelle. You know, so many experts that are saying, listen, this is another reason why we simply cannot clear this. This mm -hmm. is pristine. It's rare. Um, and it must not be cleared uh, at all. You know, unfortunately, we're going to have uh, we're going to lose 2.4 hectares of it to a developer, and um, another chunk of this little patch that we're sitting on is actually going to be a fire break, so it doesn't interfere with his block. So we can put in his 23 houses there. 
And then after the fire block is the disturbance and all the gladioli and things like that. So then you lose another 10 metres. Yes. Yeah, the encroachments of the... Because when the bush, correct me if I'm wrong, but when the bush is disturbed, it creates an opening for the feral weeds to come Oh, absolutely. It certainly does. That's a really good point. Exactly right. It'll do all of that. Uh, It'll strangle what's left of some of our native vegetation. And then after that, um, I guess then the road's going to go through the right through yeah. the middle of it as well. Um, and that so road in itself will then open up more land for development. I mean, that's yes. part of the reason why they're, they're building the road. It, it really is. That, that's right. This you can see in another twenty years, this, we're going to be basically it's going to be houses through here. Yeah. It's um, it's yeah, it's a game of death by a thousand paper cuts that yes. developers love to play. And and these houses are all kind of low density suburban housing. And there are so many areas within Albany itself where we could build the kind of housing that we need, which is smaller, medium density housing within walking distance to the shops and crucially within walking distance to places like this. Precious remnant vegetation like this and and reconnect to that intricate combined big picture for want of a better way of putting it <laughs> oh no it's so true isn't it? it's human nature yeah you know, we were we were born in amongst nature and we lived with nature um in nature for thousands and thousands and thousands of years and it's only really been the last probably you know, probably the last thousand years um for some some uh, nations to have lost track with nature uh, whereas we, as you know, we are still here very strongly connected to nature and our well-being. It's beautiful for us. But, um, yeah, when when people forget about nature uh, in the name of development or money, um, I, just, I don't understand how a very small fraction of the world's population can, can speak for all of us and can do these things and 99.9% of us do not want it to go ahead. Um, I, I feel that these... Point one percent or whatever they are are just going to destroy all of Earth um, for our generations and future generations. I, honestly, as I've mentioned, I just don't even know if people are going to be if we're even going to be around in another hundred years at the rate we're going at. Yeah. The Earth is getting hotter and hotter. Yeah, even um, less at the way we're going. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, we are all now realists, aren't we? Yeah. Because we're seeing it right in front of us. Yes. Across decades of our lifetimes as well. And, you, you, you know, the club and Rome and the degrowth movement started in the early 70s. So we knew about runaway climate change yeah, and the yes. impacts of just doing the whole growth experiment. Yeah. <laughs> for, you know, <clears throat> at least, you know, 40 years in, in at least, you know, yeah, yeah. The, the scientific community. <clears throat> well, I think um, certainly. I mean, in population, I think we've, um, I think we've grown by. Well, the Earth's population has expanded by what two billion people in twenty years. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. just that's just not tenable at all. And, no. Um, A li- little question on that. Yes. Yes. I've tended to come by my perception of population policy in Australia particularly when it's designed to boost GDP growth and therefore construction and housing supply yes. and without any consultation yes. with um, First Nations people is just yet another manifestation of colonisation and yet it's an issue that's so suppressed even in kind of 
or taboo even in left it is um, a taboo people thing, in the left of politics. So, yeah. so I just wanted, you know, that's that's where where I'm coming from, but I also don't want to, you know. Oh no, I, I I know, and it's something that I think we we all want to talk about, but we're mm. almost too afraid yeah. to, aren't we? Mm. And really, it really needs to be addressed. Um, I saw on the news the other night that if we were to continue the migration that we uh, intakes that we're getting. By 2071, we're going to have about 47 million people uh, in Australia. Yeah. We just simply cannot sustain that. No. As you know, it's a coastal continent. Yeah. Um, uh, we've actually got a very fragile environment. But we've got an empty interior. Yes. <laughs> All the migrants can just go to the centre of Australia. Yes, yes. Green, well, there's a yes. reason why that's, you know, that's, yeah, that's there's right. a low population density there. It's very much mm. so. There's no water. I mean, you, have to, well, you, you might dig down about 20 or 30 metres to get to the basin, but uh, the artesian basin, but um, I think we've already reached our maximum population, if anything. When you have a slower rate of population growth, a more considered rate that isn't driven by growth, but, but for other reasons, you have that slower pace to be able to do urban regeneration and selectively densify and, and, and do all of those things and create really nice medium density walkable neighbourhoods, but that's, that's a slower process. So you, when you have large numbers of people coming in um it's just much easier just to release land and say just build yes and and those are the factors that are driving the the migration those are the forces that are driving the people that want that so i think population policy needs to be taken away from the development lobby and the growthists because it's not sustainable for that reason it really isn't um now i certainly do respect our government um at the at the moment but but this is just insane. Yeah. Um, and um, planning, as you mentioned, we need to build up now, don't we? We can't be building outwards anymore. It's all needs to be built up, you know, whether it's apartments and... And medium-type townhouses, yeah. Yes. Like those kind of, yeah, medium density and high density. Yes. We don't need any more uh, low-density suburban development, no. Isn't Perth a shining example of... What's it from? Um, 150 kilometres. 150 from kilometers, yes. Two Rocks to Dawesville, and they want to go up another 50 kilometres to um, Seabird, which is oh, past Gildeson. And it's like, That's, you know, it's already ridiculous. It's already almost the length of Israel. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly right. Exactly. Um, yeah. And it's interesting because um, they actually said i think the state government said oh we would love to do medium density and build up but because there's a housing crisis on we have to keep releasing land because we don't have time for that kind of approach you know so so this this goes back to this this whole fact that there are so many growth-based forces behind sprawl you know so so sad yeah as you as you're saying mark it's it just seems to be easier to clear a bit of land some houses up rather than building upwards. Mm. Um, is is, is population a shared concern among your community? Is it kind of just one of many oh, <laughs> problems or, or is it as controversial within your community oh, as wide Australia? Well, or? I think it certainly ties in with um, obviously more and more people, more land is getting cleared, as Mark and yourself were just, just saying as well. For us, any more land being cleared is really, really disturbing. It's not just that, but there's some of these places that we used to go to, we had our own little places we'd go off camping, quite remote, um, and you'd go away, you, you can be three or four days and you just won't see anyone else. That's how it used to be. 
uh, now some of these old old places we go to, you get down there's rubbish there, there's litter, um, you know, there's been destruction, you've got trees that have been cut down, green trees being cut down, plywood, uh, our waterways, which once were full of freshwater fish, you know, they're all going, you only get small mm. fish here, they've been netted. And and this has happened in just in the last fifteen or twenty years, mm. in, in other uh, areas, even more recent as well. Um, it's just nowhere's we can't go anywhere anymore um, that we used to go to. We still go there, but um, quite often there's a lot of evidence of other people going in there as well nowadays. And uh, I mean, it's there for everyone, but a lot of our coastal areas are being trashed nowadays, aren't they? And um, just can't deal with an infinitely growing number of no. people infinitely consuming. No, <laughs> no, and certainly doing it way too too many, and really needs to probably stop, slow down, uh, mm. and just keep it sustainable yeah. to our populations mm. now. Because I think even now we're at tipping point with Australia's population. That's that's right. If if the focus on population policy was about supporting refugees and people who 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 needed to come here for other reasons than just growing the economy, I think that we could plan for that in, in a much more considered and slower way without having to, to clear bush. But then, of course, that that's not what the property council want because the property council and our economy has become so reliant now upon housing development. It's a real tragedy but you know also another going back to what michael said earlier and you're talking about behavioral stuff and you know degrowth and post-growth it's a very kind of modern term in in sort of um white culture european culture but of course the first nations people have been living the steady state society for tens of thousands of years we will not save the planet without reconciliation with first nations people at its deepest possible meaning of the word, which is not just reconciling, but understanding and getting it from your perspective about the interconnectedness of everything. Yes, yes, very much so. Um, you know, worldwide, a lot of the indigenous uh, nations all around the world have a very similar view on that, don't they? Um, I mean, it, it all connects to land, um, earth being sustainable. Yeah, we've been able to sustain ourselves here for many, many thousands and thousands of years with having little or very minimal impact uh, with nature. We never had any extinctions um, other than the megafauna, uh, which you know, quite likely is more, more about climate change. Yeah. Our people down here lived with megafauna for at least 30,000 years. It's that old, that old one of colonialism, indigenous cultures and one deems themselves to be more clever than the other one yeah. and um, we do sometimes think, hang on, uh, which group is living in harmony and which groups are very, very uh, healthy and which groups were able to look after themselves from the bush, heal themselves, sustain themselves, clothe themselves, um, shelter themselves. Uh, we've very little footprint um, as to the modern era of cutting everything down for uh, or clearing it so we can put in these modern houses and things. And, and then everyone dies. Yay, that's yeah, that's clever, isn't it? Exactly. <laughs> we already know the effect of... Uh, deforestation with the temperatures. Um, uh, I think Melbourne embarked on a, a tree planting program a couple of years ago uh, to try to reduce their their summer temperatures by about four degrees. Because of your urban heat highlights. Urban, yeah, yeah, exactly. All the steel and concrete and bitumen, and, and now Perth are just looking at doing it. Now they're they, they're doing it in some places, uh, and they're just they're just they're clearing it all. Then they realise it's too hot, so we're going to start doing something about it again. But it's not like a tree can grow up in, in a year. No. It takes, no. takes a long time to mm. grow, doesn't it? And 
and that as well. So the answer is always very simple. I've been asked this many times. What can we do? Stop clearing land. Just start planting trees again. You know? <laughs> yeah. Just stop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah. That's right. I think that's that. That is the crucial first step: is stop clearing. Yeah. Because from my own knowledge, which is quite limited, that getting cleared bush back to the state it was in before is an incredibly long and difficult process. And, of course, it increases the fire risk as well, doesn't it? The yes. more you clear virgin forests, the more the, the fire risk increases with the regrowth and the feral weeds and plants and, coming in. And that's been proven too, yeah. scientifically proven. Um, you know, when they had those bushfires over east and the ones that are beginning over here, they're becoming more and more severe because you clear your lands. That allows more firestorms to create um, in these cleared areas, whereas when you had lots and lots of tree, it actually creates its own um, ecosystems, it creates its own water, its own its own rainforests, all from trees, all the oxygen, and it would actually put out fires quicker than, uh, than if you had cleared forests. Um, and we unfortunately are seeing that now, aren't we? And we're seeing it really, 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 really quickly, aren't we? Unfortunately, yeah. it's happening so fast now that um, this year, I, I, I'm very fortunate. I, I'm always out pushing. I'm, I'm sort of looking at what nature's doing at different times of the year. And this year has been really noticeable. It's a really early start to summer. We were seeing reptiles out this year, baby little baby bobtails at the end of August. And we normally wouldn't really see them in probably October. So they're probably five to six weeks early. It was actually warming up a lot earlier. Um, it's only, only needs to warm up half a degree. Um, or one degree, and that doesn't sound like much, but it's actually a lot. Yeah, it's certainly humidity's kicking in a lot more. Uh, it's getting hotter and hotter, earlier and earlier. And I have been asked, is this just a one-off? I said, look, I couldn't tell you, but I, I really don't think so. I think this is going to become the norm now. Uh, it's just going to get hotter and hotter, less rainfall. And what what does it relate to? What we're doing, well, what's happening right in front of us is is uh, it's all contributing to it. Um, and it's, it's quite annoying, as you know, that um, we can do something about it, but it takes 100% of the people, the population, to all be on the same page where you have 99% that want it to happen, but the 1% are the ones that are the ones that actually can make it happen but won't make it happen. They do the opposite. And then the 99%, I remember, like, Dr Mary Graham at the Nina saying, like, people want to change, but... Um, get lost in habits and so you know you're you're born to and grow up with like certain ways of being even if you don't like it and one of it seems to be putting you know rich sociopaths on pedestals and voting for the same people that are going to do the same wrong things over and over again Yes. Complaining bitterly about it, yes. and yet still, still, yes. yeah, still allowing it to go, and yeah, yeah there needs to be a right to do it, and voting them in. <laughs> yes. So you know, there's a lot of habit breaking that needs to happen. Oh, yes. Yeah, uh, um, I know our younger generations coming through. They're you know, they're becoming more and more switched on because I mean, this is really going to affect them big time, um, and um, you know. Hopefully, we might get some more common, you know, a lot more common sense with the 18 to 20 year olds that are coming through now, and even the younger ones. They're learning all about environment at school nowadays. Um, That's good to hear. Mm. Yeah, we, we'll talk, uh, we'll go and chat about the seasons, or the animals, or nature, and the beautiful gentleness that people have had 
for many thousands of years. And and the schools are letting it. Schools are allowing it, which is so, so, so good. Um, so they're all growing up with this real connection to, to the bush, the country, the animals, the people, um, through languages and things. And, um, and so they're becoming really, really aware of what's going on out there. But is 20 years going to be too late? You know, I wonder. You know, even, yeah. even 10 years. These things need to stop now, don't they? We need action yeah. right now. Right now. Right. Exactly. Yes. Is anyone listening? Right here, right now. Right. Yeah, yeah, the exactly. time is now. Yeah. It really yeah. needs to happen. No more development here. Albany was once such a beautiful, grassy town. Yeah. It was yeah. fantastic. Yeah. And I've seen it in the last 30 years. Well, it was once a very leafy, beautiful place with a really predictable climate suddenly turning into steel, bitumen, concrete city, and it's getting hotter and hotter. And the climate has, you know, has certainly been changing. Um, fans of this place could do so much better. They could, have, they could very easily listen to the people and say, "Yes, let's do it this way. Let's do it the way that it should have been done, not not the way that we're currently doing it." Um, unfortunately, you get a number of very wealthy business people that have a completely different outlook in life um, and don't really care what happens to the bush. They just want the dollars. Um, and it's disappointing that um, that uh, our city of Albany is letting it happen. Mm. Yeah. Same old fucking story, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> oh, it's fucked. Yeah. <laughs> Larry, was there any uh, uh, parting words uh, other than it's fucked? Um, for those that want to develop, well, good luck because you're going to have to put up with us because we're still going to be here. We'll still be contesting every little bit that you try. Uh, I'll be here if they even think about putting a bulldozer in. Well, yeah, they can they can contend with myself. Um, and if they run me over, well, too bad. I don't care. <laughs> they can bury me down at the bottom there with all the other old burials. <laughs> Um, yeah, thank you. That's the best party words. Ever. <laughs> <I love laughs> that. Thank you for thank you <laughs> for the, the opportunity to have a chat. Thank you so much, Larry. Really appreciate your time. Oh. I love love listening to you speak. Uh, listening to Postgrowth Australia podcasts, we are your co-hosts Mark Allen and Michael Bayliss, and we just spoke with Nunga Menang educator and advocate Larry Blight. I'm particularly impressed with how Larry approached the issue of population policy in Australia. I would also like to give a heads up to Sustainable Population Australia, who support this podcast. As their communications manager, one of my key aims over the last few years is to open up the discussion around population and migration policy to everyone, including first-generation migrants and First Nations people, whose perspective on this issue tend to be either assumed or ignored, in my opinion. Several years ago, I co-presented at Melbourne's Sustainable Living Festival with Gunnawal man Richie Allen, who is Director of Traditional Owners Aboriginal Corporation. A little later, I interviewed Professor Anne Polina, Chair of the Matawara Fitzroy River Council and a Nyakina Wara traditional owner. 
all three of these wonderful individuals not only shared so much wisdom so openly, but shared their perspectives to my niggling question as to whether population policy in Australia, without consultation with First Nations people, is just yet a modern iteration of centuries-long colonisation. I would like to thank our listeners for getting us over 20,000 listeners last month. Please help us to keep up the momentum. PGAP will never be corporatised and relies on word of mouth. Please share this episode among your friends, family and networks. Everyone needs to hear Larry's insight and wisdom. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast platform. Any feedback to PGAP, ideas for future topics or suggestions for future guests, contact us anytime. You may also wish to support the work of Sustainable Population Australia, our kind supporters, by supporting their campaign for 2024, Say No to a Big Australia. They are inviting signatures on their position statement, or you may decide to become a supporter and receive free weekly e-news and four yearly newsletters. You can even give a donation if so inclined. Mark, any parting words? Yeah, thanks, Michael. I think what I'd like to say is please share this podcast far and wide. It is crucial that Larry is heard by as many people as possible as we work towards building the post-growth world that we so desperately need. Most of this shift that we need is not just about creating a new paradigm, but also remembering an ancient way of connecting to the world that many of us have covered over with layers of distraction. There are those voices that remember and we must listen to them now more than ever, so... Thank you again, everyone, for listening, and uh, let's spread the word, and spread Larry's word in, in particular. And until next episode... Until then... <laughs>